Welcome back to There Are Three of Me. Those are my pen names. And tonight, Philippe has been a little busy. One of the uh, responsibilities of Philippe de Lamatroc is video game stories. And he has been writing one of my four whips. Actually, he's writing two, but one of them has to do with video games. And that is about Final Fantasy XV. Final Fantasy XV had kind of a sad story, but in the middle of it, they had 10 years go by just like that. And while Noctis was not my favorite character, my favorite character wasn't really in that 10 years. It was really kind of annoying. The 10 years was not in the main game. You basically leave as Noctis and you come back 10, minute, 10 years later. What you do see of the 10 years is in Comrades, the multiplayer, and it really doesn't seem to fit the main story at all. I mean, Gladio, Prompto, and Ignis would be in the middle of it. They wouldn't be sidelined just coming every once in a while to practice fighting. And Ignis wasn't a slouch. So, you know, I have completely different ideas about that. The only thing I've really kept from comrades in the story is the the walls around Lestalem. They were pretty cool. Okay, so let's move on to what I was going to say. Philippe has written a new chapter of Momentous, chapter 55. And you're thinking, oh my God, that's an incredibly long story. Well, this was less than 2,000 words of a chapter. Momentous is written very differently because it's going to cover over 20 years, perhaps. I know it's covering these 10, but that story ain't over just because we hit the 10-year mark. And yeah, we hit the 10-year mark. That means Noctis has returned. So, very excited when I write. Yes! And I like what I've written. Yes! So, yay! <laughs> New chapter of Momentous. It's always, this is one of the easier stories to update because I do have to put just a short chapter together. Um, sometimes the, store, the chapters go in kind of an arc, and so they kind of really connect quickly together in time. Other times they jump. So the previous chapter was like six months ago. So now we are at the 10-year mark, and things are progressing. Noctis is back. And it starts out right with a phone call where um, Talcott is calling someone, and I know it's Ignis, in the, in the truck. And we start with that conversation, and we move right to the point where Noctis and Prompto, or Noctis and Talcott, rather, in the truck are just about to pull into um, Hammerhead there. So it's a nice little story. It progresses several things along um, there's also a conversation with Aranea, so there's that. There's the, the bros kind of teasing each other um, and being supportive of each other as well. So it's a nice little chapter. I think it'll fit great. And now we can move on to some exciting stuff. It is hard to fill 10 freaking years. <laughs> so it's getting a little hard to think of Okay, what can we have happen next? What can we have happen next? It can't be too bad because, you know, like Arden does not attack Lestalem before this 10 years happen. He's busy setting up insomnia. So I have, you know, my big bad, my villain's over there. I have to bring him back now and then to make things worse, you know, but, you know, 
keep the tension high and, you know, use the demons a lot. But other than that, it's been, it's been a really rough. It was easier at the beginning. So I have a lot of chapters that came out really quick and then it kind of slowed down, you know, but then I started trading chapters with different stories. And then we went on hold for a year as I just wrote Bucky stories. So I'm trying to keep back this uh, taking turns thing going. And so it was Momentous's turn. And I managed to knock that out tonight. I'd had some idea how it would go. I watched a video to remind myself exactly of that phone conversation and knocked it out. It's like 1700 and some odd words. It's quite short, but altogether this story has, um, let me see. So far it has 85,477 words which sounds like a heck of a lot, but remember they are all in short chapters. 55 short chapters thus far. I do believe that after this group of chapters that will be in this 10 year area, we're going to skip, you know, probably, you know, probably be pretty close for a few chapters and then we're gonna skip years at a time. So the, the chapters will be in time of in story time more sporadic as we go till it finally ends and i got an idea when it will end and it's way past 10 years it might be 60 but yeah we're gonna get sporadic toward there it may jump decades you know it could all right in other news my stomach is now reminding me that I'm not quite over this. I've been feeling like I'm over the stomach virus entirely. I've been feeling well. I've been eating gentle but real foods. I had um, I had two pieces of toast for breakfast. And, ah, two, not just one, two, two whole pieces of uh, toast with cinnamon and sugar. I had uh, and I washed it down with apple juice. Then I had a nutrition shake, drank it slowly because the day before I had gotten not, no, two days before I had gotten nauseous, but I really didn't feel like having broth for lunch. So I had the shake. It worked. I was fine. Uh, for a dinner, I had a microwavable. We decided we'd go and we'd look at microwavable meals and I could look and try to get something gentle. So we picked three for me and they were turkey with gravy and stuffing. And I do not like mushy stuffing. So mostly I was going to eat the chicken or the turkey. And then on the side was apples and cinnamon. The turkey, that's what I had tonight. It wasn't so great. Um, the, the, there wasn't a great flavor to the, to the gravy, but I did eat all the turkey, all the turkey and a little bit of the stuffing and then I tried the apples and oh my god <laughs> they were good I'm not I'm not saying they're bad but man did they have flavor whoosh totally overwhelmed by my tongue I was like whoa it, it was like it was baked in really really heavy sweet syrup and so it was a it was a shock to the system but it was yummy and um, I was fine with that. A little later, I had one of those freezer pops and it turned out to be mango flavor. I was hoping for banana, but it was mango. And then 
my husband had found there were pina colada ones. And while I am a teetotaler, I do love the taste of pina colada, which means I would like to try it as a mocktail, you know, non-alcoholic cocktail. But yeah, there used to be a flavor of Lifesaver in the Lifesavers candies, pina colada. Oh, I loved it when I got that one. Mmm, it's like coconut. All right, so I had one of those, and now my stomach, it doesn't hurt, but it's gurgling. It's gurgling and growling and, you know, bubbles moving around in there. So just a little bit, you know, letting me know, hey, I'm still down here. We're still not 100%. So my other meals I have, I still have a thing of microwave uh, chicken rice, which I can put a little bit of uh, chicken broth in, which will make them a little bit less, you know, they're pretty dry when, when you cook them. Um, so I might have that for lunch tomorrow. The other ones I had, I have a meatloaf with a little gravy and mashed potatoes. And then I have chicken breast with gravy and mashed potatoes. So both you know, got a little meat on the side, but then just mashed potatoes. Mashed potatoes are pretty simple. And yeah, I think that'll work. I do generally prefer dark meat to chicken breast, so hopefully it has enough gravy to make that good. Um, I find white meat is like chewing rope. Um, <laughs> straw. <laughs> but I also could eat it with, you know, each bite with the mashed potatoes and that'll help too. So those are my next three dinners. Um, for breakfast, we have some pastries. Off, I, We always stop by the bakery clearance shelf and there wasn't much there today, but there was like little mini strudels. There was cinnamon and there was chocolate. So I told Rob, we'll share those. We'll cut them in half and we'll each get cinnamon and chocolate. And that will be our breakfast on Sunday. And he had bought little packets of muffins for breakfast Monday. So we have that. And then I will have the um, rice for lunch and one of my dinners. So yesterday I ate an entire 781 calories all day. And I was satisfied with that. I wasn't super hungry. And that, you know, <laughs> that's very little, but you know, I had to be nice to my stomach. And that today I've had a little over 1,100. So it was still quite low. Uh, but I'm working my way up. You know, I'm working my way back to normal. I'm, I bought, before I got sick, I bought a strawberry cake. And we put it in the freezer because I wanted it to be for Memorial Day. And so I bought it on the 20th. There were tw 10 days till Memorial Day. So we put it in the freezer so it would last. We put it in the refrigerator today. I'm hoping that I will be able to eat that cake by Monday night. <laughs> so here's hoping. My non-linear recovery, but we're moving toward recovering. <laughs> so I'm happy about that. So, yay, I have written something. Yay, I'm feeling better. <sighs> I'm happy. All right, Julian Bashir is not happy. Julian Bashir is having a hard time. 
Riker's having a hard time. Riker's crew are having a hard time. Jordan is around and he's still having a hard time. So yeah, we're talking about Faith, a DS9 story written by Gabrielle. And we've been reading the last story of the trilogy. We have read three chapters of the eight chapters in it so far. And that means we're ready for chapter 14. Because if you remember, chapters one through five were in the first one, uh, which was hope. And chapters six through 10 were in the second one, forgiveness. And now we are in peace and we start with chapter 11. And we've read 11, 12, and 13. Time for chapter 14. Star Trek Deep Space Nine, Faith, Part Three, Peace, by Gabrielle Lawson, Chapter 14. Borman was still staring at the empty hooks when the others around him, except Garulos, began to move, a body brush between them. Take these and follow me. Borden looked to the voice and opened his hand. A red patch of cloth was placed there, and the thin man gestured that they should follow quickly. They were led to a barrack building, very much like all the ones Borman had cleaned throughout the day. There was a door on one end that slipped up into the ceiling, and little else besides. Already the building was crowded with prisoners, all men, and all sitting or lying on the hard dirt floor. The corner just to the left of the door was empty of people and stank. Borman had cleaned enough barracks to know why. He had not once seen any waste reclamation units or latrines. Like animals, the prisoners were made to live with their filth. But like men, they had scraped together as much dignity as they could manage and kept it to one place. The prisoner they were following led them to the back corner. Do you think the commander's here, Lieutenant? Garulos asked beside him. I hope so, Borman replied. He looked to the left and the right, scanning each face they passed and realized there were already more than a hundred prisoners in this tight space. But he did not see Commander Riker. The man stopped near the back and pointed to two empty spots on either side of a prisoner, sitting hunched against the wall. Only then did Borman realize who the prisoner was. Simmons! Instead of raising his head, Simmons ducked it. Garulo sat be down beside him. We heard Jordan last night, sir. They took your tongue? Simmons didn't look up, but he nodded. Borman couldn't think of any consoling words, so he just put a hand on Simmons' shoulder. He sat down on Simmons' other side. While Garulos asked if he'd seen Commander Riker, Borman finished his scan of the barracks. He saw only one other familiar face. Jordan was sitting with a group in a, the far corner. They sat in a tight circle and spoke quietly amongst themselves. Then one stood in the center of the circle, and the others reached forward to touch his legs. They all bowed their heads, and finally, Borman realized what was going on. They were praying. Borman realized it, but he didn't understand it. Praying was something from the past, when humans believed in deities that were greater than themselves. He wondered which one of those deities this group of prisoners were praying to and why they bothered. No deity had stopped the lottery that night. None had stopped it in all the other days and nights of this camp. Praying, he supposed, was a crutch, something to give them false hope. He heard the amen, and then the group broke up. The prisoner who had led Borman and Garulos to their spot tapped Jordan on the shoulder and pointed toward them. Jordan smiled and moved over to them. What were you doing? Garulos asked, nodding his head to where the group had been. Bible study, Jordan answered. 
You're welcome to join us. We meet every evening. Today we were blessing Ensign Morales. He's volunteered to be a missionary. Borman wouldn't have asked, but since Garulos had, he was curious. Missionary? Jordan nodded. He is going to take Psalm 139 to the other barracks. We have no Bible. We rely on memorization. Each barrack dedicates a new missionary who will change barracks each day, rotating to all the, uh, the barracks in the men's camp until he returns to his first barracks, as Jaffe did tonight. Garulos grunted, though Borman knew that was a sign of confusion. What happens when you run out of memorization? Jordan shrugged at that. A genuine concern, so each night we pray that the Holy Spirit will continue to give us scriptures so that we don't run out. I'm Jordan, Lieutenant, by the way. I don't believe we were properly introduced. Borman, Borman replied, also a lieutenant. He touched Simmons' shoulder again, as is Mr. Simmons here, and our associate is Crewman Garulos. Have you seen Commander Riker by any chance? Jordan's smile evaporated. No, but nice to meet you all the same. I would suspect the commander had an appointment with our commandant. Dr. Bashir, though, will arrive later, so your turn for questions. At that, every head in the barracks turned their way, and other prisoners inched closer. What can you tell us about the state of things outside the camp? Three hours later, Borman's throat was hoarse, and the door to the barracks opened once again. It was a long walk back to the crematorium, but this time Bashir did not have to carry the bodies. In, flat, in fact, Schlachter had hit him twice for trying to help one of the condemned prisoners who was struggling with a body bigger than herself. Once they reached the crematorium, though, the bodies were dropped onto a stack and left to Bashir. One by one, he carried them inside and placed them on the table. Their clothes went into the bin near the door. The table was lifted into place and the crematorium did its work. The fifth body, though, was more than a body. It wasn't until he had picked him up that Bashir realized the man was still alive. He hadn't moved, but his pulse and breath were hard to ignore, as was his voice. Please, he begged as Bashir placed him on the table. Not the oven. I have to, Bashir told him. I'm sorry. Not alive, the man argued. You put corpses in there. I'm not dead. Not yet. Not the oven. Bashir realized then that the man wasn't asking to live. Rather, he was asking that he not be burned alive. He wrestled with himself. Would it be ethical to put the man into the crematorium alive just so Bashir could say he hadn't killed him? Would it be euthanasia to kill the man quickly before burning his body? Would it be murder? He would die anyway, but painfully. It's fast he told the man, hoping the man would take the burden from his shoulders. Two thumps landed on the door, and Bashir looked up. The capos. The door opened. Why do you delay? One of them barked. He's he's not dead, Bashir stammered. Shoot me, the man cried. Burn him, Schlachter ordered. It would be as much murder to burn the man alive as to kill him before he was burned. Bashir had never taken a light outside of combat before, or outside of being forced. He was being forced here as well. He could not win. In that case, he would give the man the least painful death. He began to undress the man, taking off his shirt. The capos, thinking he was complying, stepped back out the door. As Bashir pulled the shirt over the man's face, the man pleaded with him again. Shh, Bashir told him. You won't burn. 
He held the man's face, still covered by his shirt, in both his hands, and then he twisted as hard as he could. The bones in the man's neck snapped and his breathing hitched. His body relaxed and released the last breath of his breath. Bashir felt for a pulse and, finding none, he continued removing the man's clothes. He couldn't stop his hands from shaking. As the body dissolved in the flames, he shuddered and leaned into the wall. There were ten more bodies outside, and the crematorium was quick. He had no time to ponder the morality of his situation. Merciful, he told himself. Murder, he argued back. Fortunately, the other ten were already dead. He processed them as quickly as he could. He was anxious to go back to living people. When he had finished, he stepped outside to the waiting capos and the commando of condemned prisoners. They began to march back, and as they passed the main gate, two other capos took the women from the line and marched them away. The men were deposited in their respective barracks until Bashir was once again alone with the Jemhadar. He was stopped in front of one long building, and one of the capos handed him a small patch of cloth and two bars of pasty rations. These are your barracks, he said. The other one opened the door and shoved him inside. Once inside, the door slammed into the ground behind him, and he had to grab a wall with one hand just to keep from falling. All around him, he saw the sunken faces of starving men. They stared at him from the ground and from the wooden slats that served as bunks. Those closest put their hands to their faces and looked away. Several got up and moved. Bashir knew why they did. He stank. He was covered in filth and blood from the bodies of Vidara and the night's lottery winners. He had not had an opportunity to change clothes or even to wash his hands from the night's work. The ration bars he held were contaminated now because he'd touched them. He wasn't hungry anyway, but he might have given them away to someone. He dropped them there by the door. If someone took them, it wouldn't be his doing. Someone did, and he brushed them off on his pant legs before eating one. Bashir looked away and swallowed the bile that was inching its way up to from his stomach. He had been there once. He knew what it was like to starve. He stepped further in, looking for an empty place. The bunks he saw were full, which left only the ground for sleeping, and the ground was where the rats would come, unless he could find Max. He's one of the five, someone called out. Like Badara, show some respect. That sent a flurry of whispers coursing through the building. Nearly all the men on the floor stood up, and about a dozen began moving towards him. Tell us about the camp, one said. I heard it was on an asteroid, said another. That one had a French accent, but he didn't look like Henri. Did you really make a transmitter out of the ventilation system? Bashir looked from face to face, but he couldn't answer. There was no ventilation system beyond the gaps in the wooden walls. There was no place to move. Too many people pressed around him, nearly pushed him into the bunks. Leave him be, another voice chided. It's his first day, and he has a harder job than any of you. Bashir recognized his voice and his face when it appeared beside him. Jordan. Jordan smiled and took his arm. This way. Your crewmates from the Enterprise are here. We'll get Commander Riker, too, as soon as he's released into the system. Riker. He remembered now. The runabout. The Jem'Hadar. Deus. The bunks disappeared, and he could see that everyone would be sleeping on the floor. He followed Jordan to the rear of the building and found three other faces he remembered, but not Riker's. They covered their noses, too, and everyone around them made room on the floor for Bashir to sit. What job is that? 
Gurulos asked, wrinkling his nose. The Sonder Commando, Kashir replied as he leaned into the wall and stared at his left hand. It was whole and unbroken, but as he watched, it bent and twisted and the bunks came back. There had to be a thousand men in that one building, and the press of all those bodies made it hard to breathe. Disposing of the bodies, Jordan explained. Vidara had that honor as well. Doctor? I need to go outside, Bashir told him. I can't breathe. You can't go outside, Jordan said, touching his arm again. They lock the doors. Just relax. This is our free time, the only freedom we have. Just sit back and enjoy it. Get some sleep. Mornings come fast here. Commander William T. Riker repeated his name and rank over and over again in a whisper. His voice had given out long ago. The monotonous push of his breath through his lips gave him an anchor, something to hang on to so he wouldn't fall. Falling gave his knees a momentary reprieve, but the beatings he received caused more acute pain over larger parts of his body and further threatened his stability when, once again, he was back on his knees. It was cold. The burning, bright sunlight of day had turned into a black night with no warmth. The Jem'Hadar hovering over him did not shiver, but Riker found himself unable to stop. His teeth rattled and his whole body shook, causing him to teeter on his knees. His legs were numb from lack of heat and circulation, but his knees were in constant pain. Jem'Hadar didn't sleep either. They had received their tubes of Ketracel white after the screams of the lottery losers and quieted. Riker received nothing, and his hunger added to his instability. His vision, diminished by the darkness, swam in waves of motion. The wind whispered to him, Lie down. Sleep. Riker, he breathed, trying to drown out the wind. William Thomas, commander, first officer of the USS Enterprise. Riker, William Thomas, commander, first officer of the USS Enterprise. For Menos lay in her bed, covered by a thin bl blanket. She had a small pillow under her head and a real mattress beneath her body, but she could not sleep. She ran the day through her memory, searching for clues, trying to remember everything that Fenner had said, every expression on his face. He had pleaded with her. Carl was lost in the experiment, and Fenner had pleaded with her to understand the urgency of the project. He said he didn't want to waste the 42 that were left. There was such pain in his voice when he said it. She believed him. Fenner was no traitor, not in the literal sense. Nor was he a collaborator, as they were usually thought of. He didn't even do it for the science. He didn't work for the Dominion because he wanted to. He was forced to, in a more subtle way. The Dominion hadn't used force with him. No torture, no threats. They used guilt. For every failed experiment, another pilot was lost, and he felt himself to blame. But he wasn't to blame. The Dominion was, and she had to convince Fenner of it. He was close to success, and success could cost millions, even billions of lives. The pilots were expendable, though she felt awful even thinking it. But it was the truth, and the pilots themselves would likely understand that. They were prisoners of the Dominion. They knew what Dominion victory would mean for the Federation. Finner was a precious thing in wartime, a compassionate man. But there was a reason compassion was curbed in wartime. Finner was too nice, too hurt by the loss of the pilots to see he, that he was leading the Dominion to victory, and that 
that cost was higher. She had to convince him. She had more freedom than anyone else in the camp, and he had the knowledge. He could sabotage the project, corrupt the data, and if he couldn't be convinced, she would have to curb her compassion and make sure that the project and its creator were destroyed. Captain Sisko, Picard began, it's good to see you again, though I wasn't aware the Defiant was assigned to this fleet. His countenance matched his words. He smiled amicably, but his tone was clipped and formal. The Enterprise ha was being readied for battle even as they waited for the fleet to assemble. Good to see you as well, Sisko returned. We haven't been assigned to the fleet, but it seems our missions have intersected. I have a runabout I'd like to talk to you about, but not over the comm. The fleet was converging near the Garhua Nebula in an attempt to avoid Dominion sensors, but Sisko knew the Dominion wasn't the only organization that might be listening. Picard apparently knew that, too, because his smile never wavered. Understandable, he said. Would you care to meet in my ready room? That would be fine, Sisko replied. I'd like to bring a few of my senior staff, if you don't mind. Not at all. I was going to invite a few of mine as well. When would be convenient for you? Now, if you're not overly busy. Picard's smile widened. That would be fine. I'll have Mr. Data meet you in transporter room two. Sisko nodded, and Picard's image winked out. Dax, Chief, you're with me, he ordered, standing up. Mr. Worf, you have the bridge. Worf took the captain's chair while Dax and O'Brien followed Sisko to the turbolift. What will you tell them? Dax asked, catching up with him. The truth, Sisko replied. But then he stopped and grabbed her lightly by the arm. He held her gaze until she nodded. There was some truth that could never be told. That settled, they went on. When they materialized on the Enterprise, Commander Data was waiting for them. Welcome aboard, he said in greeting, smiling lightly. The captain is waiting in his ready room. Lead the way, Sisko replied, smiling back. They walked down the corridors in comfortable silence. Data only spoke again to order the turbolift's de destination. When they reached the bridge, Deanna Troy rose from the captain's chair and joined them. Can I get you some tea? Picard asked as he stood and offered his hand. No, thank you, Sisko replied, taking the hand and shaking it firmly. Behind him, the door swished closed. Mr. Data, Picard said, looking to the android. Data opened a tricorder and scanned the room. Secure, sir, he reported. Picard nodded and pulled down on his jacket. Good. Please have a seat. He gestured toward a sofa and some chairs and sat himself. I believe we've all met, so we can skip the introductions. What can you tell me about my runabout? Captain Sisko met his gaze, deciding to get right to the point. We have it. Picard's eyebrows lifted. Counselor Troy looked just as surprised. Data simply cocked his head slightly. Her crew? Picard asked. We don't have them, Sisko replied, but we have an idea who does. We were able to trace the runabout from the Pharaoh system. It had been cloaked. When we found it, its logs had been wiped, and there was no one and no cloaking equipment on board. We did, however, find Dr. Bashir's civilian clothes in one of the lockers. Dr. Bashir? Picard asked, clearly confused. Civilian? Troy asked. He gave me his resignation a few days ago. I haven't submitted it. As far as Starfleet is concerned, he's still an officer. He left the station on a transport shuttle early that morning, but disappeared in less than an hour. Picard leaned back in his chair. You think it's Section 31. Sisko nodded. I know it's Section 31. It's the only way to explain the cloak and Bashir's presence aboard your runabout. He didn't leave to join them, 
Dax spoke up. He left. He left so they would kill him. O'Brien finished for her. He told me the night before that he was jealous of Vladya, one of his friends from Auschwitz, because Vladya had the strength to commit suicide, and he didn't. He wanted Section 31 to take him and kill him. Troy paled, and her mouth opened slightly, but she didn't speak. He fooled you, Sisko told her. He fooled all of you. He's not well. I forced him, Dax admitted. I took him off duty until he could open up to me. I pushed him too far and took away his one refuge. If he was unstable, he shouldn't have been on duty anyway, Lieutenant, Picard assured her. But he was awfully good at that deception, wasn't he? That part wasn't a deception, Dax said, defending Bashir. He was perfectly capable in the infirmary. Dr. Crusher would agree with you, Troy finally said. He's remarkable. I've never met a human who could block my senses. He's in trouble, Sisko said, bringing the conversation back to the main issue, and so is your runabout crew. Chief O'Brien took up the report from there. We found two warp trails near the runabout. They led us here, to Denexi. Behind the lines, Sisko added, to be exact. I think we can assume the Dominion has them. Picard and Troy were struck by that news. Data, however, remained stoic. Is there any reason to think that Section 31 is here? Or perhaps they thought Dominion capture would be a more appropriate punishment for Dr. Bashir and our runabout was an unfortunate bystander? Sisko shook his head. I don't think it's either of those. We were sent to find the runabout, but before that, our assignment was to find Fenner and uncover the Dominion's plot. Picard nodded. Riker's team's mission was to find Fenner. There had been a report that he was in the Pharaoh system. Admiral Necheyev authorized the mission and insisted on the inclusion of one Lieutenant Dayton. She was the only one on the team I didn't know. She was probably a plant, Sisko concluded. Picard tugged on his uniform jacket again. It wouldn't surprise me if Admiral Necheyev was involved with Section 31. They want to find Fenner as much as we do, Sisko told them all. I think they know where Fenner is, and they set up the capture of your runabout with our doctor aboard in order to get to Fenner. So they are prisoners of war, Picard surmised. Do you think they have a plan to get them back? The barracks had been quiet and dark for at least a few hours when Deus returned to him. Riker vaguely worried that he'd be questioned again. He was too tired, too dazed, too beaten to come up with good lies. He could barely even lift his head, but Deo surprised him. I've decided to give you a commando all your own, the Vorta said. Stand him up. The Jem'Hadar on either side of Riker grabbed his arms and hauled him to his feet, but Riker's feet were numb and his knees cramped. His legs refused to hold him and he fell to the ground again. He would have liked to stay there, to close his eyes and let sleep take him, but Deus had other plans. Keep him up, Deus ordered. He has work to do. The Jem'Hadar lifted him again, and this time they kept their hold, which caused his shoulders to ache. I'm giving you a rather light assignment, Deus said in mock sincerity. A cleaning detail. You should thank me. We've even gathered all the necessary supplies at your work site. You have it easy compared to some. He wagged his finger at the Jem'Hadar and then started walking. The Jem'Hadar followed, dragging Riker between them. His legs were regaining their feeling and now were besieged by the distinctly uncomfortable feeling of a million and a half pins and needles. Even more uncomfortable was the smell as they drew near the work site. 
Slaughter site was a more accurate term, Riker decided. He had heard the screams earlier in the evening. As they rounded the corner of the building, Riker held his hand up against the light and the putrid smell. He saw a bucket and brush standing by the wall and realized that this was what Deos expected him to clean. He dared a glance at the hooks, expecting three bodies to still be hung there, but they were empty. The walls behind them and the floor below them were smeared with blood and filth from the gruesome, painful deaths the hooks had provided to fifteen souls that evening, and they would kill fifteen more in the morning. If it's not cleaned by the morning roll call, Deus warned, the names won't be chosen randomly. Your crew will be next. Riker was too busy staring at the blood. He didn't see Deus turn to leave or the gesture that ordered the Jemadar to drop him. Unfortunately, his legs weren't quite ready to hold him upright, and he landed on the sticky floor in another puddle of blood and detritus away from the hooks. Clean, one of the Jemadar ordered, kicking him in the ribs to make sure he'd heard. Riker had to swallow the bile he'd been fighting to keep down. He pushed himself up onto his hands and knees and tried to stand, but his legs were still assailed by those pins and needles, though less of them now, so he was forced to crawl through the muck to reach the bucket of tepid, soapy water. Jordan woke when the light hit his face. He was used to it by now, but it still annoyed him. His father used to wake him up like that. He'd come into the bedroom and turn on the lights while shouting, Wakey, wakey, as if it were some funny joke. What it was, was blinding. Jordan sighed. He missed his dad. His parents probably thought he was dead, thanks to that clone. Jordan quickly stuffed those thoughts back down into the dark corners of his mind. He turned to his right and found Bashir lying still and staring at the ceiling. For a moment, he was reminded of The Lord of the Rings, a book his mother had read to him over and over as a child. Legolas, the lone elf of the Fellowship, could sleep with his eyes open. Well, at least that was the simplified way his mother had explained it. But Bashir didn't look like an elf. He looked all too much like a broken man, and it seemed likely that he hadn't slept at all. On his other side, Borman and Simmons began to stir. Garulus was already standing. His orange hair looked fire-bright in the harsh overhead lighting. All around the barracks, men were moving, stretching, helping each other to stand. Jordan touched Bashir on the shoulder, and Bashir bolted up to a sitting position. Good morning, Jordan offered. Sleep well? Bashir didn't answer, but he did turn his head to meet Jordan's gaze. Roll call is in 15 minutes, Jordan informed him and the others from the runabout. That's not a lot of time for the hundreds packed into this barracks. There will be ration bars outside, one per man. Don't take more than that. Some of the hungriest ones try to take more. They are beaten for it. Not by the Jem'Hadar. He paused to make sure they were all paying attention. They are beaten by us. No man is allowed to take the life of another. Leave that to the Dominion. Borman and the others nodded, and Jordan looked to Bashir to make sure he heard. He still didn't speak, but his eyes looked more alive than the night before. He seemed to be lucid. Garulos offered Jordan his hand, and Jordan gladly took the help. His limbs were stiff from sleeping on the hard ground. There will be another lottery, Garulos said, and his accent made it hard for Jordan to determine if he were making a statement or asking a question, so he just nodded. Why do the Chosen go so quietly, Garulos went on, and this time Jordan could hear the inflection to know it was a question. Why don't they resist? Jordan sighed. 
because they know the consequences. No one will get rations for a week. The last time someone resisted, 200 of us starved. I've never been so hungry in my life. Garulos nodded and cast his gaze to the floor. I see. It is noble, then, to sacrifice one's will to fight so that others may live. It's not easy, though, Jordan quietly told him, leaning close. It's a struggle each of us hopes to never face. The door opened and the melee began. The hungriest ones had lost their decorum and pushed hard to get through the doors to their meager ration bar. The others were hungry, too, and refused to let them through. Jordan and the others of the Bible study stayed to the back. The runabout's crew did as well. Jordan touched Simmons on the shoulder. You'll have your breakfast at the plant, same as lunch. Something you can drink. Simmons' head bobbed in what might have been a nod. By the time they got out of the door, only two dozen ration bars remained. Just enough. There were no chosen in the barracks the night before. Rations were eaten on the way to roll call, and the walk, therefore, was usually quiet. Also, the knowledge of what they'd witnessed again that morning kept the chatter to a minimum. Tujim Hadar, including the third, met Bashir as he entered the roll call grounds and escorted him to the front where another prisoner stood with Deos. Commander? Borman whispered, and Jordan looked again. Yes, it was Riker underneath the bloody striped uniform and must hair. When everyone was lined up, the court counting began. Jordan concentrated on the sunrise, watching the hues of the sky change from dark blue to brilliant white, and he prayed and sang songs in his head. Two hours passed, and he hardly noticed. Jim Hadar stopped buzzing around the prisoners, and he knew that counting was over. The lottery would begin. It was no surprise whose numbers would be called. They were chosen the night before. But Deus did like to mix the order, keeping the condemned in suspense and on edge. In front of him, two people to the right, Jordan spotted one of them. His shoulders shook in little movements, and a trickle of urine made a puddle at his feet. Jordan looked away. The first three were called, and the man one row up and two over didn't move. You have a few minutes yet, Jordan thought to him. He had seen more of these lotteries than he could count, and he'd never been able to decide if it was better, once chosen, to die first and not suffer the waiting, or to have that one last hour of life ag agonizing as it may be. The screams of the victims beat against him more than any Jimhadar fist ever had ever done. They were on his spirit and nearly drowned his hope in despair. I have Jesus, he told himself. I am and will be redeemed. Over and over he repeated those two phrases, and the last of the screams died out. A stifling silence seized the gathered prisoners, as if they were all afraid to breathe. Deus's voice rang out against the morning sky, and none of the numbers he read were Jordan's. But at least one of them was familiar, and Jaffe moved forward. As he passed, Jordan heard him whisper, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Jordan added his own whisper, He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. Another voice joined, soft and low, He leadeth me beside the still waters. And it became a soft sea, a wave of whispers carrying the psalm as other believers joined in. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Jordan felt a chill slide up his legs and into his spine, right up to the top of his head. Then a tide, the voices rose, loud and full of faith. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. 
for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Jaffe stopped in front of Deos and finished the psalm with just his own voice, unwavering and strong. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Deus looked on with disinterest. Why do you pray to a God you cannot see or hear? he asked. I feel him, Jaffe replied. I hear his voice. I feel his love, and I see him in the eyes of my brothers and sisters. You will feel the hook soon enough, Deus replied. No amount of chanting will change that. It needn't change, Jaffe said. There is life beyond the hook, a better life than you can even imagine. Deus' face hardened. To work, he shouted, ending the confrontation, the roll call, and the day's lottery. Jordan only hoped he could be so strong when his own number was called. Jaffe knelt to lift one of the dead ones, and he joined the convoy that led away to the crematoria. Oddly, Riker stayed behind with Deus, and only now did Jordan realize that the walls had been cleaned before the morning's lottery began. The siren woke her, that and the light, and the cold air streaming through the ventilation duct high on the wall. Hormenos yawned and sat up, stretching her arms high above her head. Then she shook as a chill reached up her spine to the top of her head. Her clothes lay over a lone chair that sat next to a nearly bare white table. She quickly threw off the striped camp dress she'd used as a nightgown and put on the pants and jacket she'd been given by Fenner. She heard a knock at her door as she splashed her face with water from a basin on the table. She grabbed the striped dress again to dry her face and keep the door open. Dr. Fenner stood on the other side. Good morning, Eline, he said. May I call you Eline? I wanted to invite you to breakfast. Hermenos felt a twinge of self-consciousness. She touched her head, feeling the short bristles of her hair. Why had Fenner singled her out anyway? Simmons would have understood the project better, but regardless of Fenner's motives, she was hungry. Thank you, and what shall I call you? Wilhelm is my given name, he answered, smiling. If you're ready then, follow me. He led her just one door down, and the, when the door opened, she was even more suspicious. Where her room was infinitely better than the dirt-floored barracks, it was spartan in comparison to this. She had a bed, the chair, and table with its basin of water and little else. They think the bigger quarters and comforts will entice me to work on their project, Fenner explained, blushing, and for a moment, Fermendos wondered if it had worked. Where her walls were stark white, Fenner's walls were a comforting blue. They stood in, an, in the entry room, which opened into a dining room, and she could see the table set with fruits and bread through the doorway. There were two other doors, and for Menos guests, they led to a bedroom and a laboratory. His rooms also didn't seem to be as cold as hers. Compared to every other non-Dominion person in this camp, Fenner lived in the lap of luxury. This way, please, Fenner said when she didn't respond. He put a hand on her back and gently encouraged her in the direction of the dining room. He even pulled a chair out for her and pushed it in when she had sat. It's not exactly like home, he said, taking a slice of bread from one of the platters of the, on the table, but it's better than those pasty ration bars. Hermenos chose a fruit that at least resembled an apple, though the orange color was a bit odd. It turned out to be much sweeter than an apple, too. What is it? she asked. I'm not really sure, he replied. They leave the platters here every morning. It's nothing from Earth or any of the other places I'm familiar with. 
It might be indigenous to this moon, I suppose. It's a moon? Fermenos forced her mind off the fruit. Do you know where we are? The Quaron system. Fenner chose an oblong blue fruit. The third moon of the fourth planet, Quare. Not far from the Denexi lines, which has the Dominion on edge. They are getting impatient. Let them, Fermeno said, testing him. Fenner put the fruit down and dropped his head. I wish I could, he said. I'd give up my life to keep this technology from the Dominion. He looked up again and met her gaze. But it's not my life the failures take. There was pain in his eyes and in his voice, and she knew he was sincere. The pilots, she asked. There used to be so many of them, Fenner said, snatching up the fruit again. Now there's hardly a handful. Gone. Lost to oblivion. Either destroyed or left to starve to death in some other layer of subspace with no way to contact our layer or return. He shuddered. I can't stop imagining it. Their cold, blank stare facing me from within their EV suit, unmoving and ghostly pale. Every day we deliver one or more of them to oblivion. The siren sounded again, but there was no blast of cold air. Back to work, Fenner said with a distinct lack of enthusiasm. As he stood, he pocketed a few pieces of fruit and bread. He didn't look to be starving, and they had received two meals the day before, so Fermenos was unsure why he'd be stashing food away. Nevertheless, she followed his example, wrapped a napkin around a piece of bread, and stuffed it into one of her pockets. They left Fenner's quarters and took a turbolift to the lowest level of the habitat. They went down another corridor to a barred door which Fenner opened by keying in a code. Fermenos had not seen this area before. When they returned to the habitat at the end of the day, they'd gone right to quarters. The next corridor was lined with cells. These had no furniture beyond a waste reclamator, and even their walls were transparent so that the inhabitants could not expect any privacy. Fenner walked in front of her, with his head down and his finger pointing to each cell on the left as if he were counting. The gaunt-faced prisoners in the cells moved forward as they passed, watching Fenner hopefully. Many of the cells were empty, and Fermenos knew who the prisoners were. The pilots. They'd walked half the corridor when Fenner stopped, and Fermenos could now see a small gap in the security field near the floor of each cell. Fenner stopped and passed the fruit to three prisoners who occupied the cell on his right and the bread to those on the left. The prisoners in those cells squatted to snatch up the food, which they hungrily ate. Fenner looked to the next cell down on the either side. Four for tomorrow, he whispered. For Minos only had one piece of bread, not enough for even one cell, so she didn't even take it from her pocket. Fermenos looked up and saw that there was another level with yet more cells, and she wondered how many other blocks there were in the habitat, and how many were empty now. Fenner turned and once again touched her back, guiding her back toward the door. Wilhelm, she said as they stepped into the turbolift again. Yes, he asked. Stop the lift. He regarded her with confusion, but did as she had requested. She touched his arm. You have to let them go. Fenner shook his head. I don't understand. The pilots, Fermenos explained, looking deep into his eyes. You have to let the pilots go. The Dominion can't have Kalayer subspace concealment. The project must never succeed. What? He whispered, turning to look away. She touched his face, bringing his eyes back to hers. They will win the war, Wilhelm. Think for a moment. Imagine it. Do you want them to win, to dominate the Alpha Quadrant? And what do you think they will do to their enemies who dared to stand in their way? How many will die, Wilhelm, if you succeed? 
I have thought of all that, he breathed, and he brought his hands up to grip her shoulders firmly. I tried. I sabotaged the code in the navigational system. One of the ships. He took a deep breath. We could see it. Like a ghost image. But the sensors showed it had intersected with a chronoton wave. The ship kept appearing and disappearing for days. I could see her, the pilot, burning, but the ship never blew up. Over and over it happened. The Vorta finally ordered that the base be turned 45 degrees so it wouldn't be visible from the launch bay. That pilot is still out there somewhere. Matingua, that was her name. Fermenos knew the name. She'd read the report. But when Dr. Bashir wrote the report, he didn't know what actually happened to her when she reverted back to the time of her ship's explosion. Fermenos closed her eyes and hoped that Matingwa wasn't conscious of the temporal loop she was stuck in. Fenner released her and moved away. The turbolift began to move again. I can't get that image out of my head, Fenner admitted softly. She haunts my dreams. I can't try that again. I can't keep sending them out there to die, or worse. If the project succeeds, they will come back. But what will they come back to? Fermenos asked. You have to look beyond Matingua to what she was fighting for. I can't, he breathed as the door opened onto the lab. They were all dead this time, and fairly fresh. Gore and filth and blood didn't smell good, but rotting flesh smelled infinitely worse. And part of Dr. Julian Bashir was shocked that he could be so cynical. Each of the bodies he incinerated had been a person, a real, whole person. Somewhere they had families who missed them, families who would grieve their deaths if they ever received the news. They had hobbies and careers, dreams and personalities. And only his escape from Camp 371 kept him from being eligible for such a death as each of them had received. But he found himself wondering if these bodies weren't the lucky ones. Their deaths had been long and brutal, but in the end the torture was over. They were gone. They felt no fear, no pain, no betrayal, and he wondered why, time and time again, fate had intervened to make sure his own life continued, even if he could no longer find anything to live for. There is life beyond the hook, that one prisoner had said, and Bashir wondered what he meant. He was aware that there were still some believers among the human population of the present, but that prisoner wasn't human, and he hadn't been alone. Dozens of voices had joined him in his recitation. Did they really believe in the heaven of Judeo-Christian religion? Did he? He wasn't sure. He would have said he didn't believe in ghosts, but Riker had heard Vladia speak. And with that acknowledgement, he realized none had come to him in this place. He saw images and people from the past, but none of them spoke to him. Not like the hallucinations usually did. Well, either way, that one prisoner would find out if there was life after death this evening when he took his turn at the hook. The Jimadar Kapos didn't care about philosophical ruminations, so he worked as he pondered that morning's lottery, carrying the victims to the table and dumping them into the crematorium. Each body seemed heavier than the one before, and by the tenth, his arms were shaking from the strain. He told himself that next time he'd save the women for last. They generally weighed less. He opened the crematorium door, dumped the ashes, and went to get the next body. By the last, he could no longer lift it, even though it was thin and frail. He hooked his arms under the man's shoulders and dragged him into the small room. 
He practically had to climb onto the table himself in order to get the corpse up there. A thought danced in his head for a moment. He could roll himself into the incinerator. But of course he'd have no way to lift the table to seal it. He got down and lifted the table, sealing the corpse inside the incinerator. In 30 seconds, that man who had had a family and dreams and hope was reduced to ash, and Bashir was allowed, in small ways, to be a doctor again. Commander William Thomas Riker was finding himself jealous of Dr. Bashir's insomnia. He hadn't slept a wink all night, and he felt it. Bashir, on the other hand, he was sure, had not so much as closed his eyes all night, but his only apparent symptoms were mental. Physically, Bashir looked no different than the day he left Enterprise. Riker's body was bruised and sore from the beatings he received during the night. He hadn't eaten since the runabout, so he was very hungry. But his bout with element, the elements the day before and all night long made him feel clammy and feverish. And his present assignment was pushing his stomach right over the edge. He'd dry heaved at least a dozen times. After the heinous lottery, Bashir was sent to deal with the bodies, and Riker was, once again, left to clean up what they left behind. Only now the blood was fresh, and he'd been on hand to watch the victims die. Of course, he'd already seen it with Vidara, so the surprise was gone, but that didn't lessen the horror of watching it happen over and over again. After the last, fifteen new numbers were called, and Riker watched each face as they came forward. Some were pale and shocked realizing only then that this would be their last day of life. Some faced the Vorta with stoic defiance. Two cried openly, and one came forward reciting a psalm, and its expression was peaceful. It was almost enough to calm Riker's roiling stomach. But then they had left with Bashir, and Deus ordered him to clean the building. All of it. The wall was left in its raised position, open to the roll call plaza. Because of that, Riker could find little shade, and the burning sunlight cooked the blood and debris onto the walls and floor. He'd gone through three buckets of soapy water already, and his hands were stained red from wringing out the brush and mop. Sweat dampened his striped uniform and dripped into his eyes. He was allowed a short break when the temperature was at its highest. He was given two ration bars that tasted like clay. He hadn't eaten since well before their capture, but the stench of the building and the, the filth on his hands kept him from eating more than a bite. He was hungry, but he didn't feel his stomach could handle it. What he really wanted was a drink of water. The only water available, however, was that in his bucket, and even when it was fresh, it was soapy. As he scrubbed, he thought of the Enterprise and Deanna, and he thought of his crew. None of them had come forward in the lottery, at least. Simmons worried him, as did Fermenos. He knew nothing of her fate since they had been separated. In fact, the only one of his crew he'd seen since that first morning was Bashir, who wasn't even officially part of his crew. He tried thinking about Fenner and the mission, but he also hadn't slept in more than a day. His mind swam from one thought to the next, from rational to irrational. He dreamed even while he worked, eyes open and body moving. But always his mind came back around to the nightmare of having a hook buried in his back. Parmenos found that her new status as a willing scientist gave her an added benefit beyond the retention of her tongue, freedom of movement. It wasn't complete freedom. There were still Jim Hadar keeping watch, but they didn't try to stop her from leaving one room to get to another. 
Apparently, being a scientist on the Kalayer project carried a high status. Fenner knew she wasn't really a scientist, and he didn't assign her any tasks beyond what she might have learned in her flight training. Nominally, she was put in charge of ship design. In reality, she made very few suggestions to the present design. It seemed that Fenner had taken an interest in her even before they'd met. Once, when they were alone in the lab, she had asked him how he knew her name, and he showed her. He went to a computer terminal and logged in. Once he was in the system, he showed her how he hacked into the more restricted areas, including the Dominion's list of prisoners of war. Femenos watched him very carefully, memorizing everything and asking questions anywhere she was confused. In the end, he showed her her own file, and she wasn't surprised to see a list of degrees she had never earned. Fenner had not only viewed her records, he had changed them. And that had given her an idea. Fenner left to relieve himself, and Fermenos followed his actions to hack into the system. Besides prisoner records, Fenner had access to nearly everything in the plant. Power relays, ventilation systems, matter resequencers, transporter controls, scrap inventory, etc. She thought about simply deleting every record about the Kalayer project, but decided there were probably backups on the orbital base. She could change the code in some small way to ensure continued failure, but she didn't want a result like Matingua's purgatory. She needed something that would stop the experiments altogether. She needed to destroy the plant, its computers, and the orbital base. It was a tall order, and she wasn't sure how to fill it. She heard footsteps and quickly logged out. Fenner returned, and, as she pretended to work, she pondered the problem. She had freedom of movement, but she couldn't just stroll through the plant setting explosives here and there. Would you do me the honor, Fenner asked, coming up behind her, of joining me for dinner? Was it that time already? Her stomach rumbled in answer. In spite of what he was doing, she liked Fenner. Still, the war, the Federation, mattered more. She turned and looked him right in the eyes. I have a friend here. I want to talk to him. Fenner's eyes dropped, but he didn't seem angry or jealous. He can't talk to you, Eline. They took his tongue. I know, she said, but they didn't take mine. She smiled. Thanks to you. Fenner took in a big breath. Twenty minutes, and be discreet. They may trust me to a certain extent, but they are only taking you on my word. Romenos nodded. He's a crewmate. I just want to check on him. Ask if he's seen Commander Riker or the others. Fenner nodded. Hurry back. Romenos didn't wait for a second invitation. She moved past him and out the door. She found Simmons where she'd seen him before, and though the Jimhadar watched her closely, they did not stop her from approaching him. He looked up with wide, questioning eyes. Are you all right? She asked, not bothering to raise her voice. I mean, besides. She touched her throat. Simmons shrugged, but offered her a slight smile. His eyes brightened when she took his hand and he felt the bread between their palms. You go back to the camp in the evenings? She asked, careful to stick to yes or no questions. He nodded his reply. Then you've seen the commander? He shook his head and then nodded and ended with a shrug. He put one finger to his eye and nodded, then touched his mouth while shaking his head. Fermenos guessed what that might mean. You've only seen him, not talked with him. So he's not in the same barracks. Simmons shrugged again. What about the others? Simmons nodded, and Fermenos sighed. Maybe she could get some help. Four minds were better than one. She couldn't count Riker if he had no interaction with Simmons, and she wasn't at all sure of Bashir's mind. She leaned against the ship Simmons was working on, putting it and her back to the Jemadar. 
The target is here, she whispered. You saw him yesterday. This is where the project is. We need to stop it. I have access to the computer. You have access to the others. I need to know how to destroy the plant and the orbital platform where they launch. Simmons had realized she was revealing a confidence and ducked back to work as he listened. He gave the shortest of nods to show he understood. I'll see you tomorrow, she said, speaking up again so the Jemadar could hear. She touched her shoulder lightly and then left him to his work. Jaffe went in silence. He did not scream or protest. His serene expression never left his face. Jordan considered himself a man of faith, but he couldn't fathom how Jaffe had pulled that off with a hook in his back. Despite the usual horror of the lottery, the surviving prisoners might have gone back to their barrack with some hope because of Jaffe's manner of passing, but Jaffe's death was overshadowed, and they left with dread instead. Unfortunately, Jordan had found himself in the front line of the evening's lottery, and so he'd had a perfect vantage point for up-close viewing, except for the triggering incident. One man farther back decided he didn't want to die in the morning. As illogical as it was, he tried to run. Not that he had anywhere to run to. The camp was vast and the fences electrified. No one yet had yet escaped, and it was very unlikely a single prisoner with nothing but the clothes on his back would do any better. Of course, he was caught. Just in case it wasn't bad enough that the punishment for resistance was a week without rations for the entire camp, Deus gave them a choice. Actually, he gave the choice to Bashir, who stood alone now that Riker had been put with the rest of the camp. One week without rations for the entire camp, or the man would be stoned to death. A historical form of capital punishment from your earth, I believe, Deus had said. One stone for each man and woman in this camp, and if even one person doesn't throw it, you will forfeit our agreement. Which shall it be, doctor? And so once again, Bashir had to choose to kill someone. If a man could die and yet keep breathing, Deus had accomplished it with Bashir. To make matters worse, the Jemadar brought the whimpering escapee to stand in front of him so that Bashir could get a good look. He pleaded, and Bashir froze. From the back of the gathered camp, the chant began, Stone, stone, stone. Jordan understood that, and he chanted along because he knew Bashir didn't understand. He'd need the help. One man for two hundred. Julian Bashir stood in front of the quivering prisoner. Tears ran down the man's face. He'd lost control of his bladder in his fear. Please, he begged. I'm sorry. I'll go. Deus raised a hand to dismiss him and stepped between them. The choice is no longer yours. That privilege is for our renowned Dr. Bashir. One week without rations or stoning. Yours will, of course, be the first stone. Nok nicht, Bashir heard, once again seeing Sharfier Heiler before him. Und du nicht. Stone, 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 the crowd groaned. A week without rations, Bashir looked at their faces, gaunt, pale, starving. They'd starve. Oh, it's not that easy, Herr Englander. Hyler had a gun, and she turned it from his temple to face the crowd. I will shoot one of them. Choose, ordered Hyler. Or was it Deus? How many will die in one week, do you think? She pulled the trigger, and Piotr collapsed to the ground. Bashir collapsed, too, and fell to his knees. Stone, he breathed. I'm sorry, Hyler said above him. I didn't hear you. 
Another shot rang out, and another man fell. Stone, Monsieur choked out. Stone him. It's actually kind of fun to read, and it was kind of fun to write a man whose mind is going. Um, it's odd that way. I mean, it's kind of hard to write um, Bucky Barnes when he has no memory, but this, going back and forth between the present and the past for Bashir and melding the two of them together is kind of fun. Um, not for Bashir, obviously. <laughs> He's losing track of reality at times and he's mixing it with his his traumatic memories um for those of you who haven't read Osbianchim there was a point where a man had to be um punished Bashir never knew why but he was going to be beaten there at the work site and Hyler handed him the whip and Bashir said no and she said, um, I can't remember what nuknikt means, but <laughs> undunikt I do remember, and not you. You know, she put the gun to his head, that was it, and he just said no, he wouldn't do it. He was willing to take the bullet. And then she says, nuknikt, and then undunikt, and not you. Not now, I think it's not now and not you. And she turns the gun and shoots, and it's Piotr who falls, who was one of his friends. Piotr didn't speak English, his brother, Shimon, did. Shimon didn't like him much, but Piotr did. So Piotr kind of made Shimon help Bashir. And they shot, she, she just shot him, dead, right there. And then that is the point where that beautiful sentence comes in. Life had become an absurdity he didn't want anymore because this was crazy. This was, you know, it, this, this broke him. He had to beat a man, count of 20. The man had to count. He, he fell unconscious part of the way through and they had to start over at one. The man didn't live. And so Bashir, a doctor, a man who is, uh, I lose a word, um, dedicated his life to caring for people, to helping people live, to preserving life, was forced to take one. Because if he didn't, she would keep shooting. There was one man or more than Piotr, and he did it. And it was during the briefing that he broke down. Debriefing that he broke down, and Kira basically told him, "No, she killed him. She just used your hand to do it." So you know, <laughs> that was a very hard point for Bashir, and now he's being put in that same position. He has to choose to basically kill one man. I mean, the man was going to die anyway. There's that. But he has to choose that he's going to throw this stone at this man or hundreds will die. 
in a week without rations. And the crowd knows the, co the, knows the score. And they're all shouting a stone, stone, stone. Not shouting, chanting, stone, stone, stone. To help him decide. And Bashir makes the decision. He had to. It was the only decision to make, but that doesn't make it an easy one. And so he immediately, as he's given that decision, he, he goes back into Auschwitz. He goes back into that moment with the whip. But other things have happened in this, uh, this episode. We spend a lot of time with other characters. And I like that that happens. It would be kind of dreary to just be in Bashir's mind the whole time. Um, it helps to have other avenues to go. So we have the A story, which is that in the camp, but it's got many characters. We have Borman and Riker and Simmons and Garulos and Fermenos and Fenner and Bashir. And then we have the B story, which is the Defiant and the Enterprise and the things going on out there as the battle is about to start. So, good news is that uh, the Defiant has figured out where everybody probably is, or at least that they're with the Dominion. But that doesn't mean they're close enough to come and get them. There's a battle about to happen. And so, bad news there. Good news for Menos has figured something out. If she can just get the help she needs, she's going to put an end to this K-Layer subspace concealment stuff. So she has talked to Simmons and given him a loaf of bread, uh, or a bit of bread. Hopefully he can gum it down, I guess. Um, oh, he has teeth, never mind. He can chew it. He just, you know, has no tongue to move it around his mouth. So that'll be a little bit difficult. Um, so he hopefully is going to take her message back to the others and somebody can figure out how she can put some code a virus or something into that computer that she now has access to to make everything go kaboom. So, that's a tough call in this camp. I mean, there's a lot of Starfleet officers there who might know something, but she can really only get to her crew. She doesn't know if she can get to, to Riker through Simmons. She knows she can get to the, you know, the others of her crew and maybe Bashir, but she doesn't know what state of mind Bashir is in he seemed kind of iffy. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, she's, he seemed kind of iffy back on the runabout. So, this is, you know, he's not, he's not a known quality, quantity. He's, he's unknown as far as she's concerned. And, whew, Riker. Boy, did I dump on Riker on this one. <laughs> so, not only did he get the beating and the questioning, which he made a good story for, he got to be standing on his knees all night long and before the night was over he had to clean the muck from the walls and the floor of the barracks with the hooks so fun that and so he's there at the front when the next 15 are put on the hooks and then he gets to clean it again but now after that he gets to go back into the crowd of, of uh, prisoners. So one would think he's going back to the barracks now and the man can find, no, he's got to do work. I, I, you know, eventually he's going back to the barracks and can finally get some sleep, we'll see. 
So that's where we stand. Um, just as it's fun to write bad guys, um, if you can get in their mindset and let them have their motivations, let them have their beliefs, um, it's, it's kind of fun to do it. Um, but it's also fun to like take somebody and really mess their mind up and see what you can do with it. And being that I had planned this would be, you know, Faith Trilogy would be after parts of If It Not One Thing, um, but Osvian Shimon, Pain of Memory, and probably Healer, that he would have those memories of Auschwitz. We have, you know, the them seeing the tattoo, the the you know, the fact that his bones in his hand are only about a year old. We have, you know, so it's not been that long out of Auschwitz. It's only been like a year. Um, so yeah, it's a very that's a very traumatic thing to live through the Holocaust. <laughs> and he did. So it's not so easy to just put it aside. But it was also kind of fun, though intimidating, to write all the um, therapy scenes with Dax. With Troy, to a certain extent, he'd kind of convinced himself of the equilibrium stuff. But when he was on the station, he was a little bit different with his mind because Cisco was there. It was what he wanted, but he hadn't calculated that Cisco would be there, and that rubs and Dax is trying to take over where Troy began, and he has to evade her. So I have to be able to write her point of view of trying to get him to speak and helping him, you know, trying to help him through what happened with his evading. And I'm going through that right now with um, Bucky Barnes in The Path That's Not Taken because he is evading and I never use his point of view in that story. So that's really tricky. It's all got to be his conversations or his actions with other people talking with him or seeing him that show there's more going on. Sam has kind of figured it out, but you know, that there's more going on, he's only giving Sam the easier of things but they don't know the depth of it. And it's interesting to try and make sure I put in the hints that there is a huge depth to it without giving away that depth so that other characters never quite see the depth. That's tricky as a writer. It's kind of like when I said you have to answer all the questions. Um, so that your readers won't ask them. So you got to make sure that somewhere all the question questions have answers in your text. So I have to make sure that when the thing that happens happens with Barnes, that's going to show exactly how deep it is that the clues were there, but I never get to use his point of view. If I haven't used his point of view in five or six chapters, how in the world can I use his point of view in the seventh? It just, it can't happen. So it's all about the others seeing him, interacting with him, 
or talking about him or thinking about him. All of it. The whole story is is that. But there's going to be, I think probably in the next chapter, this very, very emotional thing that happens. And then it's going to be all out in the open. And then I get to work in Age of Ultron and Captain America Civil War with this change that that Bucky Barnes sat down, the Winter Soldier sat down next to Captain America and so was captured, in a sense, taken in and by the remains of S.H.I.E.L.D. and now being hidden by the Avengers. And that's going to change Captain America Civil War so much. There's a whole lot in that that's not going to happen. Because (laughs) Bucky Barnes isn't there. And nobody's trying to kill him. Well, one person will try for a little while. (laughs) But, yeah, it's going to be different. My my next trick on that one is trying to figure out if I'm going to put this emotional scene in between Strucker's uh, factory and Ultron or if I'm going to make it outside of that. Some some mission that happened before that they were called up upon and then um, Iron Man has to go quickly back. It, I think, I really feel it'd be easier with that because if I do it with Strucker's, we have the staff coming back we have clint coming back injured we don't have space for the thing that i need to happen to happen so i'm probably going to have to do it on another mission before because in age of ultron at the beginning they're like we've found the scepter at last so they've been looking they've been hitting bases it wasn't the only clue that that said that, but it impl- you know these these clues said they've been hitting bases, so they've been trying to find the scepter. And in my story, they're also hoping to find the other five Winter Soldiers. And it's you know that's a that's a worry point because five super soldiers they'd have to fight against. Yeah. <laughs> But Bucky cannot help them, even though he's kind of gung-ho to fight Hydra. Because if anyone of, you know, if they they bring him somewhere and even one member of Hydra that they're fighting knows the code words to turn him into the Winter Soldier, he's lost. And then he's fighting against them. So they don't want him anywhere near Hydra. Because he's not deprogrammed. It's only been a few months there there's you know they have they haven't worked out how to deprogram him yet so yeah but anyway that is a different story <laughs> that is a whip that i shouldn't have started but i did so it's one of my four and a half whips the half being the series which only has finished stories in it so none of them are in progress but the series is in progress. Um, I do have quite a few stories left to go in that. 
And I'm thinking of I'm that I might have another story for the making of the Winter Soldier from his time in Kreisberg when he was captured the first time. They put him on that road. I don't think, you know, some, I think the wiki and another thing say that he got the serum then, but I don't think he got the serum then. He never showed any evidence that he was strong or fast like Cap. Otherwise, he wouldn't have been blown out that um, train when he had the, the shield, right? He would have been able to hold it. He would have been able to, to hold up to that blast. He was not. What he was, was durable. So his, he survived with the loss of an arm, a fall from a very, very long mountain, tall mountain. So he obviously is thought dead, but he's not. Why is he not? Because of the experiments that Zola did in the camp also the wiki and some other things that we didn't get to see on screen show that when he was in the camp and he was working in the factory with the others, he got sick, he had pneumonia, and he got beaten really badly by a guard named Lomer. And then the other prisoners managed an accident for Lomer that killed him. But Barnes was taken away to go to the place where everybody disappears to. And so they thought him lost. But when they find him, when Captain America finds him, he's not broken. If he was beaten that bad, you'd think he would be, you know, ribs broken maybe, cheek, orbit, something. Um, he would be bruised and bloody. So we don't know how long he was in the lab, but he doesn't seem to have pneumonia anymore, and he doesn't have those wounds. But he's not feeling good. <laughs> he's laying in there kind of dazed out, naming, you know, doing name, rank, and serial number, and Steve shows up, and he's not sure he's real. So he's, he's not doing well. I mean, they're not treating him well there, even though they seem to have healed him. So I'm thinking the experiments he was getting there had something to do with making him a, you know, part of what Steve has, the healing. So Zola is just working on parts until he can get the whole to work. And so when Bucky is taken, they don't know for sure what's happened because they don't have the, the, the logs. They don't have the, the data, the notes, because it blew up. But he had, I believe, the healing part of the serum, but not the strength and the speed. And so he survived the fall. I think he got it later, which I've read those stories in here. Um, that would be, he was getting some kind of injections and things when he was healing from the surgery. Um, he doesn't know what they did then either. But the real big one was in the story Strong when he was strapped to a table. He'd already lost his memory. And he was strapped to the table and these 
blue tube, tubes of blue water were then plugged into his legs and arms and then injected in, and they burned. But then these lights came on over him, and that's the radiation. And that made it so much worse. And he just screamed and screamed and screamed until he actually died. They shock him back into life. They tube him and they strap up his chin so he can't scream and they go on. And then they leave him there overnight. And then he wakes up angry at them. And so when they go to the weight room to see if it worked, to see if he's super strong and tell him to lift with his right hand, his human hand, one of the heaviest things, the weights, it's not heavy anymore. And so he throws it in one guy's face. <laughs> so <laughs> that's kind of how I see it happening. And I think it makes kind of sense. So that is my head canon, and that is my uh, writing canon, I guess. That's what I wrote. And um, in Standing Watch, I believe it is, uh, Bucky wakes up, well, he screams in his sleep, and Sam helps wake him up, but he's in the middle of this uh, flashback, the flashback that is strong. So that's how these two store these two um, series mesh. The past stories stand alone in the making of the Winter Soldier, and they become incorporated into the present story when B Bucky remembers things. Um, one does not because it didn't have Bucky's point of view, and I still still haven't figured out how to get that in there. However. And that is his um, his greatest achievement. However, it is mentioned in The Path Not Taken because I have my The Making of the Winter Soldier series down as headcanon. So it is the same because that didn't change. The present stuff changes, but the past doesn't change in this whip. Nothing changes until Bucky pulls Captain from the water and lays him on the beach and sits down. Then everything changes. And it's been really fun to, to figure out how to write that. That whole series, though, the whole Bucky thing has made me write differently, which is weird, um, kind of odd and kind of strange, but also kind of interesting. <laughs> and I'm like, well... It gets the good stories out, so I'll just keep writing whatever way the magic wants me to do it. That's what it comes down to. If the writing leads me to write five pages that don't end up being in the story, but they become the background of the story, fine. It, it, it did help. Um, I'm mainly thinking of amends because I was writing a scene after... Um, healing hurts or the next stage after the next no healing hurts and the next one bearing witness I think it was yeah bearing witness and then right after that they were going to go get Bucky a new phone Um, they were going to then go sit in a park and all this stuff and I was like where's this ending where's the end of this chapter this doesn't seem to be going anywhere. It just keeps going and going and going. And it's not bad stuff. The dialogue works. It's, it's, it's all good stuff. It just isn't going anywhere. 
then I remember I realized I need to start over I didn't scrub those things I left them in my notebook and when I started writing again they were already at the park and Bucky thinks about having gotten this phone and why he got this phone this compromised phone it's a smartphone but a flip phone so that's all in the background stuff that I wrote and so now I just summarized it right there and then move on with the text that gets him to see Pepper and that's where the story really gets juicy so it, it's an interesting phenomenon in my writing style but um but I'm running with it go where it takes you right well I hope you've been enjoying this I hope that um if you are a writer you're getting something out of um my commentary that helps you and if you're a reader and you're just curious about the back you know background you know the the hows and whys of how it gets that way <laughs> how we write um I hope you're enjoying it and I do hope you're enjoying the story we are halfway through now we have read four of eight chapters so there is only four chapters left to go and then we will be finished with faith and all but one of my stories that I can read into this podcast so four more episodes and then what I'd probably wait a while before I read that Bucky Barnes story and unless I have really something a lot to say about writing um I probably want to have a couple of them to read um to make an episode but otherwise I need to find some other people to talk to I guess um yeah I'll have to figure out how I get some some volunteers anyway uh <laughs> if you're a writer and you'd like to be on this podcast please let me know Email me at inhildy at gmail.com or tweet me at inhildy. That's I-N-H-E-I-L-D-I. I would love to talk with other writers on here about some aspect of writing. You can choose. So it can be about how we build good plots or how we make characters real. We've kind of done that one. Um, how you know when a chapter's done or, you know, just different things um description i struggle with description because i don't visualize fully so yeah lots of different things how we come up with our inspiration what's my magic you know what's your magic you pick and you can read something that you wrote a short story or an excerpt or something like that what do you say you can read it ahead of time and into an audio file that then you could email me and I can pop that in. Or one person had me read it for them, which I can do too. And um, yeah, it, it would actually be really cool. So if you're interested, please do email me or tweet me. We'll get in touch and we'll make it happen. And this podcast can continue. <laughs> All right. Well, we definitely have four more episodes to come, so I'll see you. Bye.